Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. All right. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 is where we are this morning. I think uh, it's on page 3 of the paperback Bibles underneath your chairs in front of you. would really be very helpful if you had a Bible open before you as we go through this text. Um, so grab one of those paperback <coughs> Bibles if you don't have one. Uh, again, I think it's page 3, Genesis chapter 6. Um, in our kind of current cultural moment, I think a lot of us consider this to be kind of a very serious time in, in the life of our, our nation and our culture. Some of us would say that we're in a kind of a crisis mode or dealing with a kind of an emergency just given a, a lot of the different challenges that we face right now. Some of us feel like this is unprecedented, like we've never been in a situation like this. I, I think it's worth pointing out that you know all of history is characterized by crisis, uh, so I'm not really sure that this is the uh, most serious situation we've ever been in, but nonetheless, people are concerned and there's a lot of discussion about you know what do we do, how do we fix things, how, how do we approach the, the challenges and the difficulties that we face. And some people are asking you know, questions like, what is the most important thing? Where do we begin? What, what needs to be dealt with first and foremost? What's the priority? And there's all these different kinds of things. You know, we could just make a long list. Is it the political division that we're experiencing? Is it is it big tech censorship? Is it inequalities and poverty in our nation? Is it systemic racism? Is that the problem? Is it the, the threat of China? Is it the threat of Russia? Is that what we should be most concerned about? Should that be priority in our mind? Is it dealing with the pandemic, COVID-19, preventing it from spreading? Is it opioid addiction, drug addiction, substance abuse? in our culture? Is it climate change? I mean, on and on we could go. You could add to this list. What is it that needs our first and foremost concentrated attention? What's the biggest threat? Well, there's a guy named uh, <clears throat> J. Gresham Machen, who was a famous uh, theologian in the early 1900s. He gave a talk back in 1935, and the title of the talk was The Present Emergency and How to Meet It. 1935, there were crisis problems then, just like there are now. <laughs> and uh, Machen said this, it is impossible to deal first with the social and political evils of the day and then deal afterward with the unseen things for the simple reason that without dealing with the unseen things, you cannot deal successfully with those social and political problems at all. So many of us are concentrated on the things that we see and it is easy to forget the unseen things, that is the spiritual things. What Machen is saying here is that the unseen things are of first importance. Not saying that the list of issues that I mentioned are unimportant, don't mean that at all. They're not unimportant, they're just not most important. And what Machen is saying and what the text we are reading here today is gonna to tell us is that it's the unseen things, it's the spiritual issues that are most important and the things that should uh, be our primary and most pressing concern. So I'm just gonna read the first eight verses of Genesis six. Uh, please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. I'm reading from the ESV, <clears throat> chapter six, verses one through eight. 
This passage kind of serves as a, a preface, an introduction to the account of the flood, which we'll be getting into in the coming weeks. Chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, I don't know if you've ever read this passage before, but one thing that you should know is that it is a very difficult passage. And uh, this is a passage uh, on which there is perhaps more disagreement than any other passage in the book of, of Genesis. And so we're going to have to take some time to try to unpack some, some difficult things, some, some issues on which there is much disagreement. Uh, people who agree on just about everything else might find themselves disagreeing on exactly how to interpret this. So I'll do the best that I can here. Um, uh, so, but I do think that the main point of the passage is pretty clear. And, and so we'll get to that. So the first thing that we see here as we consider the present emergency that we find ourselves in is the seduction of sin. The seduction of sin. So we see the ta uh, text begins in verse one with <clears throat> men beginning to multiply on the face of the earth and of the land, daughters born to them. So this is simply mankind obeying the creation mandate. You've been hearing a lot about that in Genesis 1:28. God commands, be fruitful, be multiply. And so um, that's what humanity is doing. They're multiplying, they're spreading throughout the earth. That's a good thing. But we get to verse two and a bad thing is introduced. And it tells us that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and so they took as their wives any they chose. The sons of God choosing from the daughters of men, women to marry based on their Attraction. Now, this gets to the, the very first problem. This <clears throat> is probably the part of this text that generates the most controversy in different interpretations. And so um, we could give you a, a long list. I mean, just recently I heard one person suggest that, um, uh, that there's some kind of an alien presence here. So some of the interpretations get a, a little outrageous, I think. We're not going to give that much attention this morning, I promise. But... Uh, there are two major interpretations that are widely accepted, and the first is that the sons of God refer to angels. These are referring to angels. These are angelic beings that are somehow inhabiting a human form and then marrying the daughters of men. 
Uh, this might be the most widely held view. It was the view held by the, the church fathers. Um, Calvin did not hold that view, and so things about the time of the Reformation began to change. And so there are certain reasons to, to accept this argument. There, there are certain persuasive reasons, I, I, I think. Um, one is that you look in the book of Job, and you'll see a couple verses that do refer to angels as sons of God. So the Bible does speak that way. So... That's a pretty strong argument. Also, you look at 2 Peter 2 and Jude verse 6, and uh, it seems that those two New Testament verses are referring to this event described in Genesis chapter 6. I don't think it's really super clear. Could be. Those are two very kind of odd verses anyway, but some people say those verses are referring to this verse and telling us that these indeed are angels. We also know in the Bible that angels can take human form. And we see that happen from time to time, so it's not like that is some kind of outrageous idea. And so for that reason and and probably others, some say this is referring to angels. Now I think the the problem with that interpretation uh, are a few, and one of them is that um, we have uh, two things happening here. First of all, we've got uh, marriage taking place. That's pretty clear in verse two. Sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive, took them as their wives. And then we get to verse four and we see kind of a more graphic description of the sexual nature of this relationship. So there's a a sexual union between the two and also marriage taking place. So That causes some problems, I think, for the idea that these are angels because if we look into the New Testament, we see Jesus say this in Matthew 22. He says, in the resurrection, they, that's just referring to to Christians, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. The marriage we experience on earth, we we won't see it that way in heaven. Instead, they're going to be like the angels in heaven. So the implication is there that angels don't marry. Marry... Marriage doesn't take place in the angelic realm. So if Jesus says that, then how can we say here in chapter 6 that there is marriage taking place? I think you've got to keep in mind, it's not just the sexual relationship. When I hear explanations of this, they, they normally talk about you know, how, whether an angel in a human form could have a sexual relationship with a human being, but that's not just it. It's, there's marriage taking place. It's like the angels in human form are inhabiting that form for an extended period of time. They're, they're marrying and having children and, and having a, a long life together. And we certainly don't see any precedent for that in scripture. Uh, another reason I think we should call this into question is simply because of the flood that we see coming later. The flood is God's judgment on humanity. The sins that humanity has committed. The flood is not a judgment on angels. So This seems to be a sin primarily committed by angels in human form if we take that view. But the flood isn't trying to judge angels. The flood is judging human beings, which suggests that perhaps what we have here are human beings and not angels. Um, Lastly, if you look ahead to Genesis chapter 19, where we do see angels taking human form, Genesis 19, they're called angels. Just very clearly, spoken of as angels, not as sons of God. So we might ask, why aren't they referred to as angels here? So, for some of you, this is the first time you've ever seen this. Others of you, you know, maybe you have a different view, would love to hear it. Um, but 
I'm going to say I don't think this is referring to angels. I think there's a second option that is better, that fits the context better, and that is that the sons of God are referring to men in the line of Seth, men who are descendants of the promise that God made to the woman about the godly line, the godly descendants. I think that's better if for no other reason than it fits the context much better. Because remember, what have we been talking about here the last few weeks? Chapter four, we saw the line of Cain, right? The ungodly line springing from the serpent. And then chapter five, we saw the line of Seth, that is the godly line springing from the descendants of the woman. So that's what's in view here. And so now we move to chapter six, it seems to make good sense that we're keeping with that idea. Now, why doesn't the text just say line of Seth? I don't know, but I think the sons of God are referring to the line of Seth. So it would look like this. Remember, this all goes back to Genesis 3.15, right? I mean, maybe you're getting a little tired of hearing about that, but we gotta remember that's the context. This is all flowing from that promise that God made to the serpent and to the woman. And so the godly line comes through the woman, Eve, a promise of a descendant that is coming that goes through Seth, which now goes through the sons of God, the promise to the ungodly line, to the serpent, that is a line that goes through Cain and manifests itself through the daughters of God, uh, daughters of men. Notice it doesn't say daughters of God. It's the daughters of sinful men that are involved here, not the daughters of God. There are <clears throat> two groups of humanity. Two groups. There are some who come down the line of the serpent. There are others who come down the line of of the woman. There are some who are in the redemptive line, some who are not. Some who are in the godly line, some who are in the ungodly line. And we've been seeing that distinction. Do you remember the two Enochs? We saw the Enoch in chapter 4, the line of Cain. That was the Enoch who built the city. Then we see an Enoch in chapter 5 in the line of Seth, and that's the one who walks with God. And it's translated immediately to heaven. It's, it's a very sharp distinction between the two Enochs, between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Same thing with the two Lamechs. In chapter four, there's a Lamech. What is he? He's an angry, violent, vengeful man. He's in the line of Cain, chapter four. But then we get a different Lamech in chapter five. In the line of Seth, the godly line, that Lamech is one who's hoping in the promise of God that comes through the line of, Mo of Noah or the line of Seth. So we're seeing these distinctions in the scriptures between these two groups. And now, here's what the problem is. Those two groups are merging. I think that's what the passage is telling us. The line of Cain and the line of Seth are merging through intermarriage. And that's a bad thing. This is a bad development. We've seen that it's the um, intent of Satan to destroy the godly line, and you might remember the first attempt to do that was to kill Abel, right? Abel is a descendant of the woman, and so by this satanic influence, Cain kills Abel, and I might think, okay, there's the end of the redemptive line, but no, God remains faithful to his promise, and Seth is born, and it's almost like now, it's like, okay, murder didn't work, so how about seduction? This is the, the next scheme of Satan. We will seduce the line of Seth to intermarry with the line of Cain so that there's a mixture here and the godly line is corrupted. I mean, even if you compare, it's very interesting to compare the way these words are uh, 
ordered in the text in chapter six, verse two, it says the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took them. And it's very similar to chapter three, verse six, where Eve saw the fruit, that it was a delight to her eyes, and she took it. And so sin is just taking root here. The sons of men, that is in the line of, the, of Seth, the godly line, are driven by their sensual desires and their attraction, and they take these women, and they marry, and there's a corrupting of the line. So by way of application, I mean, what, what should we say here? Um, <clears throat> I mean, first of all, you know, this is not forbidding interracial marriage, okay? I think some have misunderstood this text and others in Genesis to say that people of different races shouldn't marry. The issue here is not ethnicity. The issue is spiritual condition. The problem here is you've got believers and unbelievers being unequally yoked, and the scriptures speak against that. Even if this is not the proper interpretation of Genesis 6, and by the way, I hold to this fairly loosely. I'm open to being corrected. Uh, again, there, there are different ways of looking at this, but nonetheless, all we've got to do is look to the New Testament, and Paul's very clear. 2 Corinthians 6, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? That seems to be the principle that's at work here. If you're single and you're looking to be married, friends, just let me reiterate to you, you need to first priority consider a Christian as your potential spouse. That's more important than someone who's attractive to your eyes. Not that being attractive is unimportant, <laughs> it's fine, but it's secondary to finding somebody who shares your devotion to Jesus. That's the most important thing. Some people talk about missionary dating, you know. Well, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, not a Christian, but well, we'll date and I'll bring him to church and I'll talk to him about the gospel and they'll become a Christian. Maybe, <laughs> and maybe not, and maybe likely not. I wouldn't count on that. Make it your first priority to find a believer to join with in marriage. So the seduction of sin, this is Satan's attempt here in seducing the sons of God and the daughters of men. But the second thing then we see is the spread of sin. I also toyed with the idea of the seriousness of sin. I think both of those apply <clears throat> in this point. The spread or the seriousness of sin. And now we get to the second difficulty. In verse 4, we see this reference to the Nephilim. So, who is that? And again, we have multiple interpretations of who the Nephilim are. It says that they were on the earth in those days. Um, so, one option is that the Nephilim, and this interpretation would depend upon the first option with the sons of God. If the sons of God are angels uniting with the daughters of men, then perhaps the Nephilim are a product of that relationship. Sons of God and daughters of men married. They gave birth to these Nephilim who are kind of these hybrid creatures, these angelic human creatures. Um, I think that's probably not the best way to look at it. And one reason is if you look carefully at verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. That's the way the ESV translates it. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So 
it seems to suggest the Nephilim were on the earth certainly simultaneously with this sexual relationship between the sons of God and the daughters of men. But when it says also afterward, the implication is that they were there even before that. So how can they be a product of this relationship if they existed before this kind of sexual union occurred? So I I don't think it's best to see the Nephilim as a product of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Probably the better way to look at it is looking to other passages in scripture. Numbers 13, there is the description of Israel invading the land of Canaan. You remember the story? They gotta spy out the land to see if they wanna go in and take the land. A lot of people are saying, you know, it's great, it looks good. Well, Caleb actually is the one, it looks great, let's do it. But a lot of the other people are saying, no, 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 let's not go into the land of Canaan. There's huge people there. We feel like grasshoppers compared to them. And they're afraid and they're scared and they don't want to go in. And one of the things they say is the Nephilim are there. The Nephilim are there. So this is many centuries later. Now perhaps they're just saying people like the Nephilim are there, but that's not what the text says. The Nephilim are there. They're men of great height. They're just these huge people, intimidating people. And so that seems to fit with what the end of verse 4 is saying. These, I think referring to the Nephilim, were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So I think what this is saying is that these Nephilim are just simply this. They're just famous warrior fighters. They're these heroic individuals that people loved and revered and What the writer Moses is saying is this stuff about son of God and daughters of men, it happened at the time in history when there were Nephilim around. That's about all we know. I mean, what makes these people different? We we don't really know. There's a lot of mystery here. We did just read a chapter that told us about people living hundreds and hundreds of years. So I don't know, maybe at this time, people lived a long time and some people grew to be very, very large and intimidating as apparently the Nephilim are. But that leads us to verse five, where finally we get to a verse that's easy to understand. It's not a verse that's easy to accept. It's not an encouraging verse necessarily, but it is easy to understand. And what verse five seems to tell us is the dreadful result of this union between the sons of God and the daughters of men, between the line of Seth and the line of Cain. And that is that once these two lines merge, then there's a further spread of sin throughout the entire human race that it contributes to a continued deterioration of the moral condition of humankind, resulting in what is said in verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, look at that verse. Look at what it says. I mean, A sobering reality here. Every intention, not just some, every intention of the heart, not just outward action, but inward motivation, was only evil, not okay or morally neutral, continually, not some of the time, but all of the time. That's what became of humanity. And that's a description of the moral condition of men, women, and children in all the world. That's why I say it's not easy to accept. It's a hard truth, but it's easy to understand, isn't it? It's pretty clear. And so don't get hung up on the stuff that's hard to understand. 
Let's focus on what is easy to understand, and that's what this verse is telling us. And that's relevant to the present emergency in which we find ourselves. In the scriptures, morality is primarily a heart issue. It's not just about the things that you do outwardly. It's not just about your actions. It, it's a heart issue. That, that's what will hopefully help you understand if you look at this verse and think, that's ridiculous. How can that be true? I mean, people, I see people do good things all the time. They work hard. They raise their families. And, you know, if you drive into a ditch, I mean, some folks might come along and pull you out and save your life. I mean, people do good things. That's true. But what the scripture says is that, that morality is deeper than just what you do on the outside. It, it has to do with proper motivation. It has to do with an attitude of the heart, and that's pretty clear here in verse five, right? The intentions of the heart are evaluated. I think you all know what it's like to do something outwardly, but your heart really isn't into it, or you do something outwardly good, but you know you have a different motive inside. Well, we're all judged on that kind of thing. Or like imagine a king who teaches some men how to fight and, and they learn to fight very well. They're, they're skilled fighters and we might say they're very good, they fight very well, but what happens if those men use their fighting skills to stage a coup against the king, to attack the king, to get the king off his throne? Do we say those skills are, are good? Well, I mean, in one sense, yeah, they're good fighters, but the fact is they're using their skills in rebellion against the king and that makes their skills wrong, but morally bad, spoiled, corrupted. And that's what the scriptures are telling us about all of our, our deeds, particularly, you know, friends, if you're not a Christian, then what you do in this life is not for the glory of God, and therefore, no matter how good it is outwardly, it's spoiled inwardly, because you're not doing it with the right intention, the right motivation. Scriptures are clear. It is not a flattering depiction of mankind, right? Romans 3, no one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. That's New Testament. Ephesians 2, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, all of mankind, under the wrath and condemnation of God. And John chapter three, Jesus, the light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's, see, it's an internal thing. It's what people love. And apart from Christ, people love sin, rebellion, wickedness. This just gets to a very basic Christian teaching that is so different. It's in contrast to everything we hear in the world, and that is this, that men and women are not by nature good. It's not the case that people are born into the world and then a corrupt, sinful society has its influence on us and then turns us sour. That's what you'll hear in the world. Our problems are basically outside of us. It's a problem with the culture. It's a problem with society. It's a problem with politics. It's a problem with economics. That goes wrong and then it spoils the good person inside. The Bible says, no, no, it's very different. It's we are born into this world spoiled to begin with. We're, we're born in rebellion against God. We're born with a sinful nature, and it's through our actions then that the outside world is corrupted. It's very different than what you hear in the world, and that gets to what is the solution to the present emergency. 
It's not fixing the outside cultural political world and then hoping that that will fix us. That, that's exactly what Virginia had just said about efforts to go over to China. I mean, what really is our hope there, that if we change China into a democratic nation, then everything will be okay? Is that what we're saying? No, we take the gospel to that place. We preach the gospel to those people that they would believe in Jesus and be transformed and be born again and society changes then from the inside out. That's the solution to the present emergency. Again, not that these other things are unimportant, they're just not most important. We don't fix society that men will be fixed, we fix men that the society will be fixed. And people are fixed through the gospel. It's a, it's, it's a sobering doctrine, the doctrine of total depravity. But friends, just for us here, two things that this ought to do. It ought to make you very humble. There is no room in the church of Jesus Christ for prideful, self-righteous, condescending people because we all are characterized by this verse. We all have this problem of hearts that are bent toward evil. And friends, telling people this is good because this is what causes a person to cry out for mercy when they realize their desperate need. But then secondly, friends, this ought to make you very, very grateful as Christians to know that this was your state, but now you are changed. Now you are transformed. Now you are different. Now you can please God. Now you can do things that are truly good because you have a proper motivation in doing these things for the glory of God. The only way that you can sing, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? is by understanding Genesis 6-5. And you get that, and then your heart becomes filled with wonder at God's grace and love for sinners like us. So sin has spread in a very serious way, and then we get to the last thing, which is the judgment of sin. I wish I could have found a word that began with S, but I couldn't for the judgment of sin. But now we get to our third difficulty, yet another difficulty, and it's verse 6 where it says that having uh, seen the wickedness of man, that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now, what does that mean? It, it would seem to suggest that God made a mistake. <laughs> Is that what it's saying? God was sorry, like, whoa, I didn't know this was going to happen. Like he didn't foresee this wished that he would have done it differently if he had to do it again and start over in Genesis 1 he would have done everything differently I mean is that what this is saying and if so doesn't that mean that God is kind of arbitrary and subject to change and changes his mind well no because the scriptures speak to this in other places the story of Saul King Saul remember him he didn't turn out so well and some of the same language is used to describe Saul. God says he was sorry, that he, he was grieved that he made Saul king. But in that same passage, it also says this. He who is the glory of Israel, God, does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. God does not change his mind. He, he is unchanging. He's unchanging in his attributes, his holiness, righteousness, patience, etc., 
He's unchanging in his eternal purposes, what he has decreed through all history. He's unchanging in his covenant faithfulness, the promises that he makes to us, his people. He's unchanging in the truth of his revelation in the scriptures. Those things don't change. But God is a person, friends, and he does have emotions, just like, well, his emotions aren't like our emotions, but he has emotions in the sense that he can be grieved and pained by sin. He's not an automaton. He's not an unmoved mover. He's not this abstract force. He's a person. And sin grieves his heart. That's what this is saying. It's just using, you know, human language to help us understand something that otherwise would be hard to understand about the nature of of God. He is pained by our sin. And so that leads him then in verse 7 to pronounce this judgment on humankind. He's going to wipe out humankind, men, animals, creatures, everything through the flood. And we'll be looking at that at looking at that in more detail in the coming weeks. Um, one more difficulty and then we'll be done with the difficulties. But if you go back to verse 3, another tricky verse the Lord says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Some say that means that God is reducing our lifespan from the long lifespans in chapter 5 to 120 years. I think it's better to say that what God is saying here is that there's going to be 120 years before the flood comes. There's going to be a period of grace that seems to be more consistent with my spirit shall not abide in man forever. You know, my patience is going to get to its end but I'm going to allow a period of grace, 120 years, opportunity to repent and turn to God, 120 years, but then judgment is coming. And that applies to today as well, right? We know Jesus is coming again in final judgment. And the time between now and then is a period of grace and an opportunity for us to repent and turn to him. Last thing we see here, a glimmer of hope. Verse eight, here's how the passage ends. Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Even as difficult and sobering as this passage is, here here grace kind of peeks through and God finds favor in Noah. God is not done. Even though humanity is wicked to the core, God is gonna keep his grace going. His grace endures. The redemptive line is going to continue. From Seth, Seth's line will come Noah, and through Noah will come a number of other generations until finally the Messiah is here in the person of Jesus Christ. God is faithful to his promise. Even in the face of the wickedness of mankind, God doesn't give up. Verse 7 tells us that God's going to blot out man. It's an interesting phrase. In the flood, he's going to blot out all humankind. And maybe you think, I wonder if God's going to blot me out one day. Well, not necessarily, because there is an opportunity for you to avoid the judgment of God, and that's by having your sins blotted out instead. (laughs) And Acts 3 speaks to this here. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled, repent therefore and turn back that your sins might be blotted out. Jesus has died and shed his blood to take your sins from you, to remove your grace, uh, to, your um, guilt and shame, that your sins would be blotted out. And friends, this is how to meet the present emergency. Calling on people to repent, telling them about a gracious Savior and the blood shed on the cross 
for them that their sins would be blotted out and the world would be changed. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for telling us the truth. And thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to your promises throughout the ages, fulfilled in Jesus, our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.